This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello there, history friends. Welcome to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. My name is Zach Twomley. If you've never listened to When Diplomacy Fells before and you just jumped in here because you felt like it, 
then you're very, very welcome. And I hope you do listen to the earlier episodes too so that you know what's going on. For those of you that have been here before and have been with us a long time, well, thank you very much for joining us as well. As is customary for these episodes, I'm here to remind you what this episode is brought to you by. And it is brought to you by... Dun dun dun... The Delegation Game. I know you're very surprised, because you've probably heard all about this by now, but just in case you have not, The Delegation Game is the latest effort by yours truly to try and make folks engage more with the product at hand, and also to get people to sign up on Patreon. For $6 a month, you can participate in one of the weirdest, most ambitious, and arguably most fun things I've ever tried to do. It's like a mixture between fantasy booking, Dungeons and Dragons, and that board game Diplomacy that is super underrated and everyone should play. You will be going to the Paris Peace Conference, and for six months I'll be narrating what you get up to and what your peers get up to, and I'll be throwing several challenges at you based on what would have been faced in real life that week, but there's also an awful lot of freedom as to what actually happens, because anything that you want to do, you can suggest. And if you can find people that agree with you, if you can find people that will vote with you and support you, who knows what you could get up to. To give you an idea of the kind of variety we have already going into this, those of you that have signed up have already picked some very varied characters. Everyone from a Japanese guy, to an Australian, to a Canadian, to a Hungarian, to a German, to a New Englander, to... British guy to like there's so many different ones and I would really encourage you guys to well think about whether or not the delegation game might be for you it is going to be something that we take a lot of time covering it's going to be something that happens every Friday once the actual Paris Peace Conference launches for those of you that are interested we'll be able to listen in even if by the way even if you're not taking part you'll still be able to listen to what actually happens to these different characters and maybe you might find it a refreshing alternative to the actual, arguably more depressing version of the Paris Peace Conference. Who knows, maybe our fantasy version of the Paris Peace Conference is even more depressing still, but knowing you guys, I'm sure you'll try and get some fun things and some more uplifting things accomplished than those that actually were there did. And maybe you'll find it easier than those that were there in Paris a hundred years ago to sort out the world's problems. On the other hand, Maybe you'll make like the Joker and just watch the world burn for the sake of it. Either way, by the 18th of January, we'll have a pretty impressive troop of delegates on their way to try and make the world a better or worse place. And if you want to join them, all you have to do is go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Or if you want to find out more, go to wdfpodcast.com forward slash the delegation game. If you're not in the mood for remembering those things, Simply look at the description and click on the link below. Unless you're listening to this on Spotify, in which case, boo Spotify. It looks like links don't really work. So just enter in the link yourself, I guess. Alrighty guys, so thanks for putting up with these tiny little ads. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Revolutionary 
change, which may well be irretrievable. I know that it is hard for Americans to realize the magnitude of the war in which we are involved. France and Italy, between them, have made waste people to keep in their side, and the whole field of international relationships is in perilous confusion. The affairs of the world can be set straight only by the firmest and most determined exhibition of the will to leave and make the right prevail. We're here because we're here, because we're here, because we're here. Today is the 28th of November, 2018, and over this period in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to episode 8 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. So, what's going on here? Well, technically speaking, this On This Day episode is a small bit cheeky, because... Realistically, everyone didn't do their preparations for Paris on the same day 100 years ago. However, because November is not very full of things that are easily tracked or traced, because everyone was doing so many things at once, I decided to kind of boil down the preparations into a single episode. To be fair, people were preparing a century ago to go to Paris, so it's only realistic that we release this episode because it covers some more of the less glamorous but still very interesting and in some ways, humorous aspects of the Paris Peace Conference. However, if you were to look up these events in history, it's unlikely you'd come across very many of them, because these are the details that are often lost in the struggle of, well, the big story that you know. This is not the big story, it's the small detail. The details that are often overlooked, but which we are going to get into here. I don't want to waste any time, so without any further ado, I will now take you to the 28th of November, 1918. Sort of. By the time of the armistice, while those concerned did not know a great deal about what the final peace settlement would look like, what they did know was where it would be negotiated. Paris. The selection of Paris as the centre of the peace conference preliminaries and then, as it turned out, the actual peace conference, was a surprising choice in many respects. The war-weary capital of France was by no means well prepared to host such a varied and fractious collection of individuals. Much of its hotels had yet to be brought up to scratch. There was a question about whether it contained enough hotels at all. Yet for six months and for several months thereafter, Paris became the capital of the world's peacemaking mission. And the resplendent royal palace to the northwest, which harkened back to a greater, more glorious time in French history, served as the stamp for its final decision and arguably its most infamous mistake. Versailles and Paris were not perfect fits for what followed. The Americans preferred the city of Geneva in Switzerland, since that was believed to be more neutral. The British might not have had many strong feelings either way, but David Lloyd George was correct in thinking that Paris would not be particularly conducive to calmness and reasonableness on the French part. It would be hard indeed to imagine the New World Order 
so long as all involved resided in the capital of the old, with the scars of the war still visible, and the memory of the conflict still fresh and painfully vivid. From Paris, Frenchmen had flowed like a torrent in August 1914 to the front, shells had fallen in its suburbs, and taxis had famously been commandeered to save France at the Marne. The city was indisputably tied up with the heroic and bloody resistance of the French, and it was therefore emotionally connected to the strong feelings which the French government felt towards the Germans. Woodrow Wilson believed the French would never give the Germans a fair shake so long as they were sitting in their capital. What he failed to realise was that, no matter the location, Georges Clemenceau would never have been able to go easy on the Germans, even if he had wanted to, which he did not. That Paris was chosen in the end was largely due to Clemenceau's lobbying, but the French Premier must have known that boundless problems and complications awaited those organisers tasked with preparing his capital for what lay ahead. In this episode, we're going to cheat with our formula somewhat, as we're going to examine several elements of this preparation for Paris, which, while not taking place on strictly the 28th of November 1918, they were still ongoing from the moment that Paris was confirmed as the location for the conference in the second week of November. Interestingly, it was perhaps the British who had the most difficult task ahead of them in terms of preparation and organisation. They would have to locate the best accommodation, imagine the best security protocols, secure the suitable food, and deal with the most irritating issues like how to house those officials who arrived late, who insisted on bringing households despite advice not to, and who competed all the while with the other sizeable delegations. The story of preparing Paris is one which is not normally looked at in the narrative of the Paris Peace Conference. Yet it is important for us to wrap our heads around it, because it demonstrates even at this early stage how difficult the task was for all involved. It also hinted at what was to come, where in November and December the delegations competed and often rubbed one another the wrong way with few traces of diplomatic finesse. By the new year these same delegations would have to work side by side and relinquish those old petty animosities that they had over space for the good of the conference. Many involved remained bitter at their lodgings, at their staff's shortcomings, at their lack of coffee, and they allowed these resentments to sour proceedings before they had even begun. This, as we will learn, was just one more wrinkle in the mission to bring the world together after so many years of tearing it apart. The curious and ridiculous and the outrageous anecdotes which confronted these statesmen who journeyed to Paris full of hopes and dreams about this mission began as soon as they set foot in the French capital and absorbed the weighty atmosphere and tensions of the city. There was much anger, exhaustion and expectation, and yet the city was lovely. It was kitted out with fine restaurants and filled with beautiful ladies, with much dancing to be had and gossip to engage with. Some that arrived were reduced to scrubbing the basements of their lodgings and removing the bloods from the floors of the makeshift hospitals before they could be transformed from wartime hospitals into proper offices. Others despaired, and we'll talk to them later on, that some in their delegation seemed more interested in the form of dance which was considered proper than in the question of Poland, for example. Jealousies abounded over who had more time with the important figures, and why. The city was a kaleidoscope of all these issues and more, and in this episode we'll do our level best to examine them and place Paris in some context just before it hosted the most important spectacle of the 20th century, at least so far. 
In many respects, Paris was as important a player in what followed as those players themselves. Its majesty, its glory, its weariness, and its pain. All of these were qualities that were impossible to ignore when crafting something as brave and treacherous as the New World Order. Typically enough, our focus will centre on the struggles of the British delegation, since this formula helps us to structure our analysis properly and provide the necessary anecdotes that fill out the story so well. To begin our analysis in a more kind of structured way, let's look at a concerned telegram sent by Lord Derby. A different Lord Derby than one we've probably heard of, this guy was the British ambassador in Paris, and on the 20th of November, 1918, he sent the following telegram. I do not think I am complaining, but I really must beg that somebody be left out here with authority to deal with all questions of taking accommodation. There is not a day that telegrams do not arrive asking me to secure accommodation for Tom, Dick or Harry. There is practically none to be had, and it means somebody going around and round the hotels until he can find a room, and it really is making this place into a housing agency. This telegram was sent by Lord Derby on the 20th of November 1918, and it demonstrated even at this early stage how acute the problems of accommodation for Britain's growing presence in Paris had become. Darby's request had been sent to Lord Balfour, the Foreign Secretary, with the added urgent request. You know what an amount of work is put upon the Chancery when the circus is here, and you can therefore imagine how much more there will be when the glorified circus fully arrives. The circus was indeed in town, but its participants had not all arrived yet. Before they did arrive, Darby was anxious to ensure that enough Brits were in place to do the legwork, and that enough beds were in place to accommodate these Brits. It seemed like a simple enough task on paper, but Paris did not take long to throw some complications in Darby's way. Darby had spoken with Clemenceau on the 9th of November about requisitioning buildings for the British delegation, for which the British Premier granted approval, and on the 13th of November, the British Foreign Office noted that Britain's delegation would require two buildings, one to serve as offices for a staff of approximately 400, and another simply to house these workers. The Hotel Majestic and Hotel Astoria were selected for these purposes, and on paper they seemed reasonable fits. The Astoria would be sufficient to serve as offices for the British delegation, and the Majestic contained 430 rooms, surely spacious enough for the Brits who hopped across the Channel to work on the peace conference. As Darby's frantic efforts made clear throughout late November, though, the Majestic was not nearly adequate. Far from needing over 430 rooms, it seemed that every day another British official with his family was liable to turn up, unannounced, and present himself before the beleaguered Darby with the incredulous challenge about where his quarters were to be for the foreseeable future. This would not do, and Darby was tasked with making a personal appeal to Clemenceau to requisition another 250 rooms somewhere else, in addition to the Majestic the Hotel La Perouse nearby was ideal, but as the name suggested, it was a great deal more luxurious and majestic than the self-proclaimed Hotel Majestic. With this luxury came the additional expense, not to mention politicking and arguing over who should get the better rooms among the British delegation. All of these complaints and arguments went through Darby, who quickly became, understandably, exhausted. Exhausted though he was, Darby did as he was told, and he ensured that the more expensive Hotel La Perouse was paid for by the Treasury. This was not the end of the matter though. While Darby would love to have engaged with other questions, 
he was soon made aware that even with 430 rooms in the Majestic and 250 rooms in the La Perouse, more rooms were needed for the staff from the Ministry of Food, which were en route, as well as the vast array of printers and copiers who were also making the journey. 120 more rooms, apparently, should do the trick. Darby bit his tongue and acquired a large building at 51 Avenue de Ina, a stone's throw from the Arc de Triomphe, but he was also asked to requisition a garage which could house 35 cars nearby. Darby's task was difficult enough, but it was complicated by a curious security arrangement which was out of his hands. So the British delegation stayed at the Majestic, La Perouse and 51 Avenue, but for some reason they worked at the Hotel Astoria. In their residences, the staff had been replaced with Brits, and the food had even been anglicised, but in Harold Nicholson's mind, none of this mattered, because as soon as they set foot in their offices at the Astoria, in other words, where they would do their work, they were surrounded by Frenchmen. What was the point in having such a concern for security and espionage in their lodgings, when their offices, where they worked, were left so vulnerable to these security gaps? In his typically biting tone, Harold Nicholson wasted no time commenting on this strange arrangement, which had in fact been the brainchild of two men, Lord Harding, the permanent undersecretary, and Alwyn Parker, the librarian of the Foreign Office. Nicholson said, Mr. Alwyn Parker, in providing us with this accommodation, had carefully considered the dangers and temptations to which we might be exposed. Under the first heading he had, such was his habit of thought, grouped the two subheadings of A. Espionage and B. Disease. As a protection against A. Disease, he had charged Sir Basil Thompson of Scotland Yard with the task of organising a security service. The result was that, although it was easy enough to get out of the Majestic, it was extremely difficult to get in. Many a foreign statesman was detained on suspicion for daring to press beyond our portals. Mr. Alwyn Parker went further. He had studied the Congress of Vienna and was rightly determined that there should be no Metternich nonsense about the Conference of Paris. The Hotel Majestic was therefore staffed from attic to cellar with bright British domestics from our own provincial hotels. The food, in consequence, was of the Anglo-Swiss variety, whereas the coffee was British to the core. Yet, as it turned out, our whole work was done in the adjoining Hotel Astoria. It was there that we preserved our papers and kept our maps. The staff of the Astoria were of French nationality. There were moments, generally at breakfast, when we felt there had been a slight gap in Mr. Parker's logic. Whether Alwyn Parker and Lord Harding accepted that the decision to work and sleep in the same building would have saved a great deal of headaches and expense is not entirely clear, but both men were becoming concerned by late November that Paris was filling up, and the haphazard way in which the British and Dominion delegations organised themselves to get to the city was not helping matters. On Christmas Day 1918, in fact, Harding sent Lord Derby a Christmas present in the form of a letter which he wrote to him, saying that In view of agitation in the French press and of real scarcity of accommodation in Paris at the present time, it is plainly impossible to acquire further hotel premises. Female staff are being placed two and three in a room, and unless members of delegations are prepared to find themselves inconveniently overcrowded, they must be cut down by one-fifth of the members now contemplated. And yet in spite of this, the Brits continued to move across the Channel, having ignored these warnings and made no preparations, and then they proceeded to complain loudly that they were not attended to. 
It was enough to make one burst several blood vessels, but somehow Darby and his colleagues managed, thanks largely to French help, to requisition two more hotels, the Baltimore and the Albe. This was the final straw, though. By the 1st of January, when two more officials from the Foreign Office had turned up unannounced, complete with demands for lodgings, offices and staff, Alwyn Parker noted with his frustration, If these demands are to be sprung upon us, we must obtain extra premises, and this cannot be done by requisitioning, since the French government have definitely ruled out any further requisitions. We must therefore be prepared to pay exorbitant rentals now being obtained in Paris. When we remind ourselves that the British were but one delegation in need of lodging, the fact that the French had either the patience or the room for them and their growing staff seems remarkable in hindsight. Paris still bore palpable scars of its wartime experiences. Several scares during the height of the German advance in August 1914 or summer 1918 must have startled the inhabitants. We must also remember that the French, and the Parisians especially, were unique in that it was possible to find within the capital citizens who had lived through the Prussian occupation of 1871. Paris could well have been a hotbed of resentment and suspicion, and to an extent these sentiments could be found. But it was also a city that opened its doors and put on its bravest, most glamorous face in spite of its traumas, a fact which those British, Italian, Americans and others did not cease to marvel at. Another interesting result of the British commandeering so many hotels alongside their colleagues from other countries was the curious effect this had on French law. Uniquely in French history, their capital contained blocks and buildings outside of their jurisdiction on a scale never before experienced. Any hotels which had been requisitioned by the delegations acquired extraterritorial status, and this had the effect of accruing the status of temporary foreign embassies to dozens of buildings, hotels, blocks, and in some cases, even whole streets. Foreign officials and soldiers could be seen to clash with the overworked Parisian police, and their guests often did not make it easy for them over the next eight months until the city mercifully, mostly, emptied in early July 1919. Surprisingly, considering their reputation today, it was the Dominion staff, particularly the Canadians, who caused the most trouble for Mr. Alwyn Parker, Foreign Office librarian and permanent undersecretary, Lord Harding, as both men tried to find house and office for so many people. The Canadians, much like their Australian, New Zealand and South African Dominion colleagues, had only a vague role in deciding the outcome of the Paris Peace Conference, yet it was the Australian Prime Minister, William Morris Hughes, who tried Alwyn Parker's patience to the greatest extent. Hughes arrived in late December, accompanied by his wife and newborn baby, and he made it plain that he expected to be accommodated in the Hotel Majestic, which had been at full capacity at that stage for over a month. The Australian Prime Minister had evidently not read those memos, urging no unnecessary staff to attend or to expect lodging in places like the Majestic, which contained no more rooms. Alwyn Parker used what pull he had, to make sure he was not the one giving the Australian Prime Minister the bad news. Some unfortunate delegate had to tell Hughes that the Majestic was full, and that while he would be given his own lodgings, there was no space for his wife, and he would have to find accommodation for her by himself. Also, there was no milk, and there was no chance of obtaining infant formula for his baby in the shattered French capital, and he really should have known better. Thank you very much. The imprecise nature of what these people were all going to be doing in Paris for the next few months, exactly what was going to be decided, and who would have the power to decide it, was only vaguely known or understood. Communication was lacking between the different departments and attendees among the Dominions, 
and even though many well-minded and intentioned men had read a great deal about the pressing issues of the day, they came armed with ideas about gains for their country without much idea about how these gains or interests would gel with the interests or gains of others. Australian Prime Minister Hughes wished to see Australia's writ extend over Indonesian islands and to take portions of New Guinea, regardless of what the Japanese or British wanted in that sphere, but I don't want you to think I'm picking on the Australians because they were by no means the most egregious or most demanding attendees, as we'll see. British Foreign Office officials were somewhat miffed that the British Foreign Office staff were the only ones to make genuine efforts to limit their staff from 40 delegates to 18, whereas the British Dominions had brought more than double their allotted staff in some cases, with no apologies, unusual for the Canadians. Everyone seemed to have a grossly inflated sense of their own importance and of the impact that they could have on the proceedings, yet because their roles were undefined and their interests in European questions normally weak, especially if they were coming from outside of Europe, the Dominions generally tended to spend their time in idle pursuits, dancing or drinking or watching the latest show. News of this idleness, once it went back to London, caused a furor in the British capital, where the impression was that British officials were living it up on the taxpayer's expense and then staggering home blind drunk after a hard day of doing nothing at all. The reality was much less scandalous, though, as the historian Sally Marks wrote. While Dominion delegates had ample time to idle in the lounges of the Majestic and to savour the delights of Paris, thus giving rise to rumours in the British press and among the public that the British delegates were frivoling at the taxpayer's expense, Foreign Office officials slaved until they staggered with exhaustion. While there is no way to measure their exhaustion as a factor in their decisions, any assessment of the activities of the Foreign Office officials and the various commissions should in justice take into consideration their acute overwork in cramped and trying conditions. We're talking here about the small fry, those who inhabited hotels and existed in rooms that contained often three other men, and they did indeed work in cramped conditions outside of their rooms. Sometimes bloodstains were still residing on the floor in the offices as evidence of the makeshift hospital which had once been in this very place, only a few months before, and the evidence of it had been impossible to remove. The senior British diplomatic personnel lived and based themselves on the Hotel Majestic, and made great use of its trappings when they had the time, sometimes spilling into the British Embassy for further work. The likes of David Lloyd George and Lord Balfour enjoyed experiences far above those of the small fry because they had their own luxurious flats to live in, and they knew nothing of the daily grind and struggle of the lowly typist or printer, who enjoyed nothing of the glamour of this famous city, and they could only strain their necks to view the great lights and sights when they weren't working into the dead of night with little thanks or consideration. It was an intensely busy eight months, and the two months before the wealth of the other delegations arrived saw the British already making their stamp on Paris. By early February 1919, Lord Balfour was forced to announce that no more personnel from the British Empire would be provided for in the city. By now, four hotels, two apartment blocks and two old mansion houses had been commandeered for the British and Empire delegations. Thus, until early February 1919, British personnel continued to drip and sometimes flood into the capital, as though on some sort of casual holiday, rather than on a mission to remake the world. The middling confusion over where to install telephone lines in the Hotel Astoria, where the majority of the office workers were to spend their days labouring and constructing this new world order, 
was a task formidable enough to take up several hundreds of pages of telegrams as the British and French struggled to reach some form of solution which would leave both in some form of control over the end result. These tug-of-wars over telephone lines were matched by the campaigns for proper or better beds for printing staff, for suitable stores of wine, or whether it was even appropriate to have wine at this time, over what food to use at the Hotel Majestic, British food of course, and whether it even mattered whether British delegates ate British food prepared by British chefs for the sake of some abstract imagining of security when these sane Brits were soon to walk across the road to the Hotel Astoria to do their grunt work surrounded by a load of Frenchmen. The delegates went on and on, the kind of mind-numbing minutiae of detail which is so often lost in the traditional retelling of the Versailles story, but which only adds to the overall picture of confusion, competition, suspicion, jealousy and ambition for better or more glamorous surroundings or stationery. These petty desires and competitions were transplanted over a short time to the more grand variety between rival statesmen when the quest to acquire this room or that hotel delicacy became one of seizing this town or getting this mandate or furthering this concept or siding with this rival for the sake of the world. The journey to Paris, in other words, was fraught with conflict and friction, and the Paris Peace Conference began in the same way it was to end, with great hopes and expectations about what one was entitled to, only for these to be shattered once reality dawned, and it became apparent that the city of Paris, much like the rest of the world, was full to capacity with counterclaims and dreams of people with stronger or more animated national aspirations, with historic grievances or with promises that had been made in wartime which they expected would be honoured now. The British were but one delegation seeking accommodation and office space in Paris, and they were but one party who sought to fulfil their ambitions during the conference. Yet even this brief example shows us that, in the opening weeks, while some could dream that the darkest, most violent episode of human history was behind them, to others it was business as usual, continuation of competition, and a continuation of the spirit of the war, but through other means. With Paris prepared, in the next episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project, we will be providing context for those delegations that were not allocated as much space in Paris as the British, Americans, or the French, but who possessed a keen interest in laying claim to as many parts of the continent as they possibly could, in the name of history, culture, tradition, justice, or revenge. Join me next time on the Versailles Anniversary Project as we meet the people who made up the delegations of Eastern Europe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 